Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice for your marriage and sex life. Two weeks ago, we had quite the podcast. Connor, my son-in-law, joined my husband Keith and me um, as he dissected a podcast by Emerson Eckrich, the author of Love and Respect, where a woman wrote in saying that she had been crying in the shower before sex every time and that if she didn't have sex with her husband, her husband would treat her badly. And Emerson Eckrich then gave some really concerning advice. Well, so many people expressed a lot of concern for that woman. And I am thrilled to say that she reached out to me. She saw our podcast. Someone else posted it in a Facebook group that she was in. And she gave me an update. You'll be very happy to hear that she's doing very well now. And she is going to be joining us um, and telling us her story of where she got to the point that she was crying in the shower, the effect that Emerson Egrich's advice had on her, and how she eventually got up the courage to recognize that her marriage was abusive and get out of it. So she saw it even though he didn't. And I'm going to be thrilled to welcome her on in just a minute. But first, I want to say a big thank Thank you to our sponsor, the Intimately Us app. Intimately Us is an amazing app for couples to help you grow in your intimacy. And it isn't gross or disgusting or anything like that. It doesn't tell you to do something that is going to freak you right out. (laughs) Instead, it's an app that helps you know yourself better, know your spouse better, and have so much more fun. So there's all kinds of bedroom games you can play. There's a variety of them. They will give you questions like, what do you think about this? Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And it lets you actually ask yourself, yeah, what do I think about that? So you get to explore what you like. You get to find out what your spouse likes. You get challenged to do some fun things and spice things up. Um, There's also great activities where you can learn how to talk about this stuff better, where you can spend more time together, hobbies, date night ideas, uh, romantic dreams. You have all kinds of fun things just to make the intimate part of your life so much more fun and fulfilling. So please right now go to the app store um, or whatever it is called if you're on Android. (laughs) What is it? Your Google Play place? I'm sorry, I'm not an Android person, but (laughs) go to your app store or your Google Play. Hey, it's good to play and find Intimately Us. There's a totally free version of the app so you can download that and then you can pay later for some upgrades if you would like those. But it is wonderful for Valentine's Day. There's a special Valentine's Day challenge that you can be part of. So go check out Intimately Us right now. That's one thing I I really wanted you to know about. The second thing I really wanted you to know about is that the Good Guys Guide to Great Sex and the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex are coming March 15th. They are launching then. I have completely rewritten the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex and Keith has joined me for the Good Guys Guide. I was hoping to have the launch team totally ready by today, but I'm just not that organized. And so it's probably going to be ready early next week. But even right now, if you have pre-ordered, you can send in your pre-order receipt and you can get our special evangelical sex report card. You can download that right now. And then next week, you will also get invited to join our launch team if you would like to do that, where you can get an early copy of the book. So do check out our show notes for all of those links and you can pre-order the books right now. But without further ado, I would now like to bring our special guest onto the podcast. I am thrilled to have on the Bear Marriage podcast today, a very special guest, um, 
probably the guest that I'm the most honored to have on of any guest I have ever had, because this woman was actually the woman that we were talking about two weeks ago. We were sharing a podcast episode by Emerson Eckrich, where a woman wrote in saying that she was crying in the shower before sex and her marriage was really in turmoil. And Emerson Eckrich gave some very bad advice. And Connor and Keith and I dissected that advice, showed why it was harmful and never thought a whole lot else of it. But then this woman actually contacted us. I am so glad to hear she's doing okay. <laughs> um, but she is here now. We're going to keep the camera off and we're going to keep her anonymous. Um, but welcome. I am glad that you are joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, we are going to share your story. But before we do that, I had so many people write to me asking how you were and if there was any way to make sure that you were okay. So before we even get into your story, can you just tell people how you're doing today? I am doing wonderful today. Um, I did escape from that marriage, and that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, I filed for divorce, and the divorce was final in June of 2020. And so I have been just moving forward, working on my healing um, I, I do get counseling, which has been really helpful in that process, uh, but things are going really well. I'm glad. I think, I think everyone is very happy to hear that. So we're going to get to what you said in the letter to Emerson Egrich in a minute, but can you paint the picture of your marriage and what led up to writing that letter to him? Um, well, you know, I grew up with an abusive father. And so I think, you know, I, I had a probably a warped idea of what marriage should be. Um, you know, I, I always said, I don't ever want to marry anyone like my dad. I remember saying that a lot growing up. And, you know, I thought, I, I remember even early on um, reading books about what good marriages should be like and, and what I thought, you know, the way that God intended marriage to be. Um, and of course, I grew up in, in an e evangelical church. And so, you know, the kind of teaching that I received all growing up and then in, into married life too. Um, but I did get married. Um, he did, this particular gentleman did claim to and appeared to be a believer. Um, that was one of my standards that I was not going to budge on. You know, he had to be a follower of Christ and he portrayed that image. I was really naive and didn't know that people would portray that image, but not live up to that. Hmm. Um, and so I feel like I was pretty deceived all throughout my marriage because he portrayed himself to be one way, but really was something completely opposite. In fact, it's almost as if he picked me out, targeted me, and was living a double life. I didn't know about it at the time. We were married for 18 years, and I didn't know for most of that time the things that he was doing. Um, but it just got to the point in the marriage where it was so difficult because of the emotional abuse and the spiritual abuse. 
And at the time, I didn't realize it was sexual abuse, but even the things that were going on in that department too, I look back now and I'm, I'm just amazed at how I survived it. Mm -hmm. But so when you say um, emotional abuse, do you want to just paint a picture of a couple of the things? I know you mentioned in, in um, the material you sent me, there was a lot of silent treatment if he didn't get his way. Uh, that was, or- yes, that, that was his favorite was long periods. I mean, it didn't start out early in the marriage because I remember there would be something that would happen. Um, some kind of disagreement or, or maybe I would get my feelings or I, I don't, I don't remember specifics, but I would go to him and try to talk with him. And there, I didn't notice it as a pattern for a while, but there was a pattern of, he would always get angry. I couldn't share my feelings about anything. And mm-hmm. my attitude then was, is I always thought of, you know, the chapter in Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, it keeps no record of wrong. And so when I would, something would happen, some kind of conflict between he and I, I had been taught that, you know, growing up and I wanted more than anything else to obey scripture and to obey God and, and to please God. And so that's what I thought. That's the way I grew up. That's what I thought I was supposed to do, not realizing, you know, that what he was doing was emotional abuse and spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. And so I, it just, I could never talk to him about anything without it turning into long periods of the silent treatment. I was always punished. Uh, there was never anything solved. And at this time too, I was reading, you were, you were working really hard throughout your marriage. You were, you were earning money. You were homeschooling the kids. You were taking care of the house and he really wasn't doing much of anything. Right. I actually, when we got married, I owned my own business and that business is what paid our bills. Um, mm-hmm without divulging what he was doing. He had a job too, but it was, you know, I pretty much was paying our bills. Um, He would pay a few with his income. And so we did that for about a year and then a year into the marriage, um, you know, he kind of was misleading me with his job and things going on at his job. And, and of course with narcissist it's always someone else's fault and at the time I I think I'd heard the term narcissist but I had no idea what that was really and so I didn't look at it as oh if this is him you know I believed what he was saying that it was everybody else's fault and um, you know he was convincing and so he ended up quitting his job as we were making enough money at the time with my business that he was able to to come on board and And I started working with him and training him. And, um, you know, I found out really quick that he didn't want to work. Um, That was a big issue throughout our marriage is is he just didn't want to work. And it was, it was, there was a lot of conflict around that. But like I said, I could never say anything without it Mm -hmm. creating problems. I mean, he just, I guess he felt entitled to just lay up for all hours of the morning and not get up and go work like normal people. Um, right. And I couldn't and meanwhile, Yeah. And you're caring for the kids too. And you're doing the laundry and you're doing the cooking and you're right. You're At one all- point, um, when we started having the kiddos, um, the, the first part, my first pregnancy, I was terrified to step away from the business. I felt like, you know, because he, he hadn't really proved that he would step up and do what needed to be done. And so I ended up feeling 
almost forced to continue to work throughout half my pregnancy. And it was in a, it was in an industry or a job that if anybody knew what it was, they'd be like, you shouldn't do that while you're pregnant. And um, he didn't protect, he didn't care. He was more than happy to let me do all the work. Uh, and I did that until about five months. And then honestly, God, thank God he intervened. God intervened and he put me flat on my back. Basically, I started having um, dizzy spells and I was passing out. Like I would be working and in the middle, my I just go black, couldn't see and went, went and got checked out. And, you know, the doctor said, you know, you just need to take it really, really easy. And that kind of forced me to have to have an excuse you know, so that he had to step up to the plate. At least that was the hope. Um, and he didn't, you know, we, we suffered a lot financially during that time, lost some business. And, and I think pretty much from that point on, the business went downhill. Right. Were you seeking out help from counselors, the church? Yes. What, what were people had- telling you? Probably at that point, I had gone to numerous people at my church, um, elders, uh, and I, I, want, I can't remember if he, he went on a few of those where we sat down and talked, but there were maybe one or two where I would go to someone privately to say, what do I do? And I know on one instance, um, I had gone to the pastor to get help. Um, because something had happened and one of the the customers got pretty upset at him but they called me because again it was my business and they knew me and felt comfortable with me so they called me to deal with it but it was something he did that was really wrong and I didn't know what to do because again I had this training growing up that I was to submit to him that I was not to be confrontational with him, that I was to honor him and always respect him no matter what. And up to this point, anytime I ever went to him for any reason whatsoever that he didn't like, number one, nothing, he didn't do anything to remedy the situation. And he punished me. Uh, He would, that's when he would be verbally abusive. He would be, you know, long periods of the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. and just not really be a part it would give him an excuse not to go out and work because he was mad so he just wouldn't go out that day or that week mm-hmm. you know there were different things that he would do to be you know to just to control the situation to where and and what advice were you given what were you told to do I remember one time in particular I went in and he was in blatant obvious sin. This was not a small thing. It wasn't even necessarily the way that he was treating me at that point. And, um, you know, I, I told them kind of some of the things about the relationship that were going on um, and then about this particular incident. And I was basically encouraged to go home. I was told that day I was told to fix his fav- fix some of his favorite meals. I was told to um, tell him how great he is basically I was encouraged to um I think I don't know what how to describe it where they you say something good about someone else in hopes that they become that like in other words I'm going to praise him for being such a great provider 
even though he's not being a great provider. I'm going to praise him for having uh, self-control when he has no self-control over his temper or his anger. I'm I'm supposed to Mm -hmm. praise the things I want and, and say them to him and encourage him when he's not doing any of those things. I'm to, you know, is to unconditionally respect him. Um, but to me, that ended up what they were saying is, is I wasn't allowed to confront him about any issues whatsoever. Yeah. You weren't allowed to tell the truth. I wasn't, you know, because if, if he would see, because he would see that as disrespectful, which he always did. It didn't matter what it was. It was always in his eyes, disrespectful. I think that's why he's, when he latched onto the love and respect message, he wanted to teach it at our church. So he, he taught two different seminars at our church. Um, we went to numerous seminars, you know, prior to that, that were mm-hmm. supposed to, you know, ideally help our marriage. And it didn't, it just, it basically gave him more fire to be more abusive. It, it did not help at all. He didn't look at any of the, the part that is taught to the men about the wife. It was all, oh, CCC, you were supposed to respect me unconditionally, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So So, again, I just want our listeners to understand this. Here's a man who's being emotionally abusive, who is not working, who is making his wife, who has small children, who is pregnant, who is going through all these hardships, making her do all the heavy lifting and he latches on to love and respect and is actually allowed to teach it. And so, <laughs> so here's a guy, you can think about the people who would have been at this seminar. They'd be looking at this cup, you know, cup teaching this course and thinking that, wow, this guy must have a great marriage. And here's what he was actually doing behind the scenes. Right. You know, and, and this isn't so surprising to me because we've got over a thousand stories now of people who, for whom love and respect made the abuse worse. Right. It definitely made it worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, he just felt so much more entitled. I mean, he was already entitled, but it, it put it on steroids. Mm-hmm. Now I know this one's personal and difficult to talk about, but this was, this was a subject of your initial email to Emerson Egrich, which is what started this whole thing. But um, he was also sexually abusive. So he, he would, the only way you could get around the silent treatment was if you had sex with him. Right. At the time, I didn't, I didn't know that it was like, I, I, I always have in my mind, sexual abuse is rape, or, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard some of the stories. Um, and I wasn't, it wasn't like he was beating me up to have, you know, but he was coercing me. And, and I felt I did, I felt forced. I felt like if I didn't give into that, um, well, I knew he would punish me because he did if I, if I didn't. Um, but and what but do you yes. what do you mean what what do you mean by that? Just let let people know by it. like how would he punish you? Well, for sure the silent treatment. And I mean he he could go weeks weeks and and at there towards the end it was months of just and I mean it wasn't he didn't speak a word to me, and it wouldn't mm-hmm. it wasn't just that he didn't speak to me. It would be the glares and the hateful, scornful looks and the coming in, I would be in doing homeschool with the kids in the same area to where I was, I could see what he was doing. Um, And he would come in and just dote on them. He would just pour out his love and affection and attention on them while he was 100% ignoring me. He would either do that 
or he would lump them in with me and completely ignore them too. It just, it depended on his mood, I guess. I, I don't really know. Some, sometimes it was like he was intentionally coming in to try to make me feel bad by over, you know, overly doting on whoever happened to be in the room, whether it was my kids or, or someone else. Um, you know, he would, he would get, when he would talk during the silent treatment, obviously he's not doing a whole lot of talking, but at any point where I would try to open up a discussion with him when things maybe were going better, um, he would verbally uh, just cut me down, um, make fun of me, be, he would, he would always, he had this sarcasm where he, he would, but he would always say, if I, if I got offended at all about it, it would be, he would use the term, oh, I'm just joking. So he would just kind of always be sarcastic, but then act like he, oh, you're so sensitive. Stop being so sensitive. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he would put me down. I don't, I don't want to use the terms that he would what he would say about me, but just put me down with words. Um, mm-hmm. Towards the end, as I started standing up to him with like the silent treatment, it wasn't when we first got married, he would use it, like I said, to control to where the only way that it would stop, he would only stop it. If he chose to stop it, it would be to immediately want to have sex. There would be no, oh, okay, I'm going to start talking to you again. Um, let's discuss what happened. You know, we both got upset or something. Let's discuss. There was never any solving of whatever issue caused him to go into the silent treatment. It was purely for punishment. Um, Mm -hmm. I I know like Emerson Eggers talks about the stonewalling and that was really confusing to me, that word stonewalling, because basically that in encouraged my husband to just think what he was oh what I'm doing is just stonewalling it wasn't I mean he was it's so it's so interesting because Emerson Egridge talks about stonewalling like it's a good thing no like (laughs) you know like like he's he's withdrawing so that he doesn't lose it with you and that's him being honorable and he portrays it as a good thing whereas John Gottman from whom Egrich got this research says that stonewalling is one of the um, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like it's one right. of the worst behaviors you can do in marriage, but Emerson Egrich portrays it as a man being honorable. So he's, he, right. he, you know, he, he's got it totally. It wrong. was, it was very confusing at the time. I mean, you know, because at the time I hadn't heard of Gottman, I, I hadn't read any of his materials. Um, you know, mostly it was the, it was the Christian resources and, you know, the books we've all discussed on the, you know, the love and respect that created to be his help me, the, you know, I'd read all of those, but that was one of the worst. I mean, I remember reading that and I didn't buy into a lot of that and it made me really angry, but then I also had a lot of shame and guilt after reading that, like, well, see, I still don't, you know, I can't do these things the way they're saying to do them and not have feelings about it. It's like, it's almost like I needed to become a robot in order to live the things out that they were saying in these books to do. Um, I Mm -hmm. couldn't, I couldn't have any feelings and emotions. I couldn't have any of that. I just literally had to be something that he could set up on a shelf and take down when he wanted to use me. And I had to be okay with that and uh, not require anything out of him and, and not ask for anything in return. That's what that felt like. And I thought that's what God required of me. That's the sad thing is I bought into that because I thought these are godly people giving out godly advice 
and they're quoting scripture. So it, right. It must be correct. Right. And, um, right. You know, I, I found out it, it wasn't through just desperation, just mm-hmm. getting to the, and I never stopped searching for answers. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I read all these books and it kept me in, in that position, but I, I just kept searching for more information and I never quit. And, and so part of that searching was you wrote this letter to Emerson Eckridge where you explained um, that you would you would initiate sex every three days because you felt like you were supposed to and your husband wanted you to and you felt pressured to, but you would cry in the shower beforehand every time. Right. And awesome. yeah. And, and this is what we talked about on the podcast two weeks ago. And Emerson Egrich's response to you, well, why don't, let me, let me summarize it briefly and then, and then we'll get your reaction. But he said that nothing is wasted. You're being an obedient wife. You know, you're not being crucified or tortured. And so this is wonderful. Your husband has a gold mine in you and, um, every man needs to recognize that he has a gold mine when you have a wife who is being so obedient. Right. And that was, and that, and then he got onto this weird thing about how to turn a woman <laughs> on, which was really strange, but that was, that was basically his response to you. Right. And so and did you hear it? Did you, did you even hear that podcast when he first told your story or used your story? When, when I sent the email in, it was because I was desperate and I felt like, oh, if I laid some of my story out, that maybe he would give me some advice on what to do with the situation the way it was, because I was doing everything that he was saying to do. And mm-hmm. yet it's still that he kind of brings that out. He says, I don't, you know, why would, why would anybody treat their wives like that? I mean, he did bring that out, but yet he never, he never gave me any advice. He never mm-hmm. said, okay, you know, this is emotionally abusive, what he's doing or. Yeah. And you did in that letter. Yeah. In that letter, you did have some signs that it was actually coercion. Like what you were describing in that letter was sexual coercion, because you said, (laughs) if you don't give him sex, your husband treats you badly. And that's a form of coercion. And he never mentioned that he never talked about that aspect of it. Well, my thought is, right. Is any, any body any woman that is saying she's bawling her eyes out in the shower before having sex with her husband, that should be a big red flag mm-hmm. and nothing. I mean, you, you heard what he said, basically that you're, I'm not being crucified or tortured. Well, yes, I was being psychologically tortured. Yeah. I was now, yeah. no, I wasn't being crucified. I mean, but to me, to even but say that's that, a pretty low bar. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I guess because I'm not being crucified, then I should accept any other kind of treatment. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know why he would have even said that. But I know. did it help? Did it give me hope? No, I I didn't leave that. The response that he gave me. I mean, I left with le- less hope. You know, mm-hmm. I left with thinking this is my lot in life. I'm stuck because I also at that time had the mindset that the only biblical grounds for divorce was adultery. And I didn't know yet at that point I had, I didn't know what he was doing. So I didn't know about the adultery. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know about the pornography. I didn't know he was doing any of that. And right. so 
I felt like, okay, you know, everybody's saying I don't have biblical grounds for divorce. So I, 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 I'm just stuck being, you know, and at the time I wasn't at that moment, I was not saying I was being abused. And yet, you know, my body was having this reaction beforehand. And in my mind, I knew my heart, I knew this can't be right. Me feeling this Mm -hmm. way, bawling, having so much tension and anxiety and pain. I'm like, sex is supposed to be fun. And it's not, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to, I'm supposed to feel more connected to my husband. And I don't. And, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't getting any answers at all. I was just basically patted on the head and said, oh, you're a wonderful wife. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. That's what I was told pretty much. Yep. He didn't, he didn't pick up on any of the red flags. He didn't say anything to you about the fact that this wasn't acceptable. And I found that very, I, I, I just think that was negligent dereliction of duty. I actually think it was evil to tell you the truth. I think what he did was evil and and you should not have had to experience that. I mean, you tried to reach out to someone that is supposed to be a marriage teacher and they completely ignored your welfare. And Jesus would never have done that. Well, and um, I ended up staying in the relationship another, what, four years after that. Um, so, you know, I don't know what would have happened had someone said, wow, what you're going through is emotionally abusive, you know, or psychologically abusive or spiritually abusive. I, I, it wasn't that I didn't have a backbone. It wasn't that I was weak or that I was codependent or that I was, I honestly, from the time I was little until this point, grow, grown up, raised up in the evangelical church, taught that we are as wives to submit, we are to you know, and obviously being Christ-like, you lay down your life for others. And, and so it just made me really vulnerable to spiritual abuse, to anyone willing to do that. Um, yeah. You know, had I, had I known beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was not okay with that, and it took a while for me to learn that, I would have stood up a lot sooner. And what probably would have happened is, is, he would have discarded me earlier. Uh, I I do think that was eventually going to happen one way or another. Um, I would have found out more, you know, um, more about maybe narcissism. I I don't know. I don't, you know, I remember Googling some terms after numerous years after this this podcast that Emerson did and found out about narcissism. And that opened my eyes a lot to what is abusive behavior. And that was really helpful, but. Right. So over the next, so you stayed together for four more years and then over the next little while you found out about his porn use and lots of things that he was doing that were not okay. Besides the abuse. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What did you ever get good advice from anyone? No, no, I didn't. I mean, like I said, I was told to go home, fix his favorite meals. I was told to give him sex sex as often as he wants. I was, Mm -hmm. I mean, I even remember questioning one couple that were counseling with us that had been married a lot longer than us that we trusted. Um, They were saying basically that if he comes in the kitchen and you got a toddler on one leg and a toddler on the other and you're doing dishes and you're in the middle of your day and he comes in and he wants sex that I'm literally 
to drop everything and go back to the bedroom with him. Um, I was told that, you know, that anytime he wanted, it didn't matter what I had going on. It didn't matter that I had two, two little kiddos that I, you know, that I needed to be there and take care of too. It was just, he was never to be turned down. Right. And right. so that's the kind of advice I was given every time I, I tried every single time I, we, we did go to counseling and we did end up, and I don't remember the, the time period. It wasn't that, it wasn't that long before I filed. I mean, it wouldn't have been more than a year or two. I think we did end up going to a Gottman counselor, um, and initially, I think the gentleman just, you know, I don't know how others do it, but he's just trying to get our story and mm -hmm. trying to understand what's going on. And we would, we would leave the counselor's office. And as we were leaving, you know, I, because my ex is very charismatic and he wasn't telling the truth, um, you know, I thought, boy, they're going to go out chest bump and high five each other. They just, he seemed to really hit it off with this counselor. And I was feeling really discouraged then at that point, but we kept going. And about four or five sessions into it, the counselor started picking up some of the things like the silent treatment and just the patterns that were abusive that were going on. And he started in front of me calling him out on those things and saying, you know, this isn't right you can't be doing this and, and just trying to counsel him. And when it got to that point, he would quit every time, every counselor we've ever been to, when it got to that point where he couldn't con them, he would quit. Mm -hmm. And so we, we never got the benefit really of that counseling because he just wouldn't stick with it. Right. And so you, what, what was the turning point for you when you finally got up the courage to leave? Um, again, we were on a different counselor because I kept trying to find, he kept making excuses. It was, we don't have the time. It's too, we're having to drive too far. We don't have the money to do that. And so I would narrow it down to, uh, we ended up counseling with someone online and he's the gentleman that uh, that's when I started being introduced to the idea of narcissism and trying to understand what that was all about. And he basically told me, the counselor said, you know, he's very highly narcissistic. And so I started researching that. And in the process of researching that, I didn't know not to like listen to some of the videos, the YouTube videos. I was listening to him in the kitchen while I was cooking dinner and he would walk in and hear me listening to him. And hmm. he must have figured out that I was realizing what was going on. And I was realizing who he was. And so from that point on, he started discarding me. He started staying out after. I, now, I didn't know because at this point, he'd gotten another job finally, which I thought was going to help improve things. Um, it didn't. It just allowed him to be out all hours. And so he would be out till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night and then come in and, and I'd be like, what's going on? Where were you at? And, and it was, oh, I was, I was with a client, you know, mm -hmm. which is a lie, but that went on for a month or so. And I ended up accidentally finding things on the internet where um, 
he didn't log out of certain things. Let's just put it that way. And I was able okay. to see that he had on, he, that's when I found out he was cheating um, mm -hmm. through, through some messages he was sending back and forth. Um, I was never really a, a jealous type person or I didn't snoop. I, I you know, I didn't feel mm -hmm. the need to, I, I was busy. I had three kids. I was homeschooling, working another, it was hard working another job. I didn't have time to chase him down and babysit him. And so I was mm -hmm. never, you know, I was never, didn't really ever check up on him or anything. We had computer blocks and things on our computers for the, the safety. I thought of all of us. So I, I didn't know about the pornography until then either. So I found out about the cheating and I found out about the pornography. Um, and then I found out that it was, you know, eventually I found out within just a few weeks that it was not just with women, it was with men. And at that point, that's when I started going back and looking at his computer history, which he didn't bother to wipe. Um, and so I got an eyeful and an earful and of all the things that had been going on for a lot of years that he'd kept hidden. And uh, it just kind of all hit at once. And at that point, for me, once I knew there was adultery and there's unrepentant, there was one point where I asked him, he came in one evening after work and I just want, I knew I'd already, I already found the truth. And I just wanted to look him in the eye and ask him if he'd ever committed adultery. I wanted to see if he would tell me the truth or if he would look down or if there would be any sign or symptom of him being shamed or, or feeling guilty or any, and there wasn't, he looked me right in the eye and told me no. And you know, that's when I, I knew, and it was, it had happened often enough at this point, it was an ongoing mm -hmm. thing where he was pretty promiscuous with quite a few people. Right. So you got out with your kids and you're healing now. Yes. 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 Doing really that's well. I, I went back to college. Mm -hmm. um, I had, I had almost finished my degree. So I went back and finished up with a few classes and just spent a lot of, I was, I, I mean, it was difficult. It was difficult. I didn't know what to do because the career that I had started back when I was 17, um, I couldn't do that anymore because again, it, it's a dangerous career and I have three kids and I'm thinking now if I get hurt, um, what am I going to do? I, you know, I I'm on my own here. I'm a single mom of three kids. I have to be a little smarter than that. And two, age catches up with you and you can't do the physical things yes. that you could do when you were 20. And so I didn't know what to do. It was like I completely had to start over. I had to find out what do I want to do? What can I do? Um, and just really pray into God. And, and he led every step of the way. I, there are absolute miracles that happened. Once I filed and once once I made that decision and started that process, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. But at the same time, miracles were happening. Um, things were being orchestrated and put into place um, just to protect me, to protect my kids. Um, you know, hearing stories of how other, other moms go through the whole custody issue. Um, you know, they, my kids stayed protected. I had a lot of evidence and a lot of proof of not just infidelity, but other abusive things that he was doing that, mm. you know, could have, you know, potentially put my kids at risk and, and me too. And so 
you know, I'm just really grateful that, that I was protected and my kids were protected. That's wonderful. So if you could, if you could go back or if you could say anything to Emerson Egridge, what would you say? needs to stop writing books and, (laughs) um, oh gosh, you know, I thought about, I don't know how I could do it, but actually giving him the story of how things worked out for me, just Mm -hmm. emailing him a, a, a letter saying this, this advice that you gave me, this is how this turned out. You know, my life was at risk with what my ex was doing. I mean, the, the diseases that, I mean, he was very, very promiscuous. And so um, the things that I could have ended up getting, you know, could have killed me um, because right. I had no idea he was even cheating. I did not know. There were not, at that point, there were not, he wasn't, you know, up until he got that last job, that was the last six months of our marriage, but all of this was happening prior. And the way he was able to get by with it was um, because he traveled. And so he would be out of town and that's when these things would occur. So I would just tell him he needs to get some education on um, situations where women are being abused and understand that better because he didn't, he didn't pick either he chose not to pick up on it or he didn't care or he doesn't understand it. I, I don't really know. Um, I can't judge where he's at in his heart, but um, I think the message is very, very dangerous. And I honestly, my personal beliefs is, is if I was, even if I was in a healthy marriage, is that healthy what he's teaching? And I don't believe that it is. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that even because I, I know that's like what a lot of the authors say. Oh, well, these books are written written for people that are not in abusive marriages. They're written for people in healthy marriages. But mm-hmm. number one, would I read a book like that if I was in a healthy marriage? I wouldn't really need to. Yeah. And number two, I don't really believe that the information that he put out is healthy. I don't believe like un, the the whole idea behind unconditional respect. What is that? I mean, no, we don't unconditionally as a human being. I understand that aspect. You can be respectful to someone that you don't necessarily agree with, Mm -hmm. but the kind of unconditional respect that he is talking about is basically you become a doormat. Yeah. Yeah. And your needs, your needs get erased. You become erased as a person. Right. Right. Yeah. And that should never have happened to you. And I love hearing your story because you're a strong person. You know, you started your own business. You like, you were someone who was strong and we didn't get into this, but you had, you had some major griefs with, with children that you lost. You had, you know, when you picked yourself up and you kept going and you raised those babies, even in a difficult situation, like you're a strong person and yet he treated you badly and you felt like you didn't have a choice. You were strong even in that, you know, just to keep going and getting up every day. I think people sometimes think that abused women are weak, but they're not. They're strong. I mean, <laughs> the strength that it takes to, to put up with that, <laughs> you know, and even when it's, when it's wreaking havoc with your own health. Um, and so I'm just, I'm so glad that, that God allowed you to see what you needed to see so that so that the marriage could end. 
Yes. I'm, I'm so glad. And you could yes. get free. And I'm so glad that you contacted me. I'm, I'm, I, we were so worried about you. Yeah. I was really thankful for, you know, I mean, I read some of the comments and things and they were bringing me to tears, you know, because everybody was so kind and sweet. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe I should <laughs> let them know I'm okay. I'm here. I'm fine. And that was me, but I'm doing okay now. And so I definitely just want to thank everybody for their comments because that was um, very encouraging to me. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. And I know that there are people listening to this podcast who are going to relate to you in a very tragic way. And so I think that that your story is going to do a lot of good here. And I'm just, I think it's so amazing. Like this is such a good example of Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God. Doesn't mean all things are good. Some things are terrible, (laughs) you know, but he can bring good out of even the worst things. And Emerson Eggers treated you terribly when you wrote that letter. And yet here, God is using your story to help others. And he let you find me even when you hadn't heard of me before. So I just, I think that's amazing. And so thank you so much for joining us and God bless you, um, in your new life. God bless your children. (laughs) And, and I'm excited that you're finding your voice too. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you having me. And I, I just hope that, you know, by doing this, that maybe some, there'll be someone out there that will hear hear the message and realize they don't have to go through years and years and years of that like I did. And then it'll make a difference for someone else. So amen. That's my prayer too. So thank you. Thank you. All right. I've got my husband Keith on with me now. Hey everybody. That was a powerful story. Mm, That's great. Yeah. I just love the fact that she found me. I think that's what so nice. That's and it's just so great to hear that she's okay now makes me feel a lot better. Okay, I have some new research that I want to share that goes along with her story, actually. Um, And this came from a a story that was in Christianity Today this week. Uh, It was published from Spanish. Or, sorry, it was published from Portuguese. I'm sorry. um, About domestic abuse in Brazil. And I love it because it's a story about a bunch of other women in Brazil who've been doing some research studies. Mm -hmm. So, yay for women doing research studies. Um, But the study itself is sad. Uh, Because what they found is that in Brazil, even though overall the rates of violence are going down, Mm -hmm. rates of violence against women are going up. And so this one woman looked at, she went into a domestic violence shelter um, in Sao Paulo, and she she interviewed women and did in the intake forms and everything. And what she found was that 40% of them were evangelical. Wow. So evangelicals are overrepresented among those who are being abused wives who are fleeing abusive marriages in Brazil. And and the article talks about how so much of that is related to how pastors talk to women who come in for help. Mm. And so I just want to read, I just want to read this one paragraph from the article and I will link to the article in the podcast notes. Um, Vilhena's, and I don't know how to say her name, I'm sorry, but Vilhena's research reveals that churches and their leaders have inadvertently helped to perpetuate this tragic scenario. As they turn to their local pastor for advice and support, hoping to escape physical and psychological abuse, many women invariably receive the same sermon. Sister, you must pray more, fast, cry out to God for the conversion of your husband. 
They quote 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And so they send these women back into these abusive situations, which is exactly what Emerson Egerich did. In the case of this woman. Yes. You know, he got a letter of a woman who was clearly being abused, who was clearly being coerced into sex, mm-hmm. and he didn't even pick up on There's the red a flags. a ton of red flags there, yeah. Yeah, he just said, you're not being tortured or crucified. Yeah. Jesus, none of, nothing you're doing is wasted. Jesus loves your obedience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it needs to stop. Yeah, and it stops, like we talked about last time, it stops about caring about women's experience. And mm-hmm. if women are being abused in a marriage, that should matter to us, and that mm-hmm. should make us change how we talk about things. Absolutely. Okay, so I have a reader question for you. Okay. Okay. It's, I don't know how much we're actually going to answer. I just want to make a few comments on this one. Okay. Um, but a woman writes in this. My dad is emotionally abusive. He berates and gaslights my mom and has described her to us, myself, and my siblings as a boat anchor, a burden, lazy and undisciplined. Mm. He is convinced that everything that is wrong in their marriage is her fault, and if he bears any responsibility, it's minute compared to her. I've got nowhere to go, and she's got a long way to go. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty darn close. When they've tried (sighs) counseling... Wow. Yeah. When they've tried counseling, he doesn't like what he hears and he refuses to go back. That's exactly what the woman said. You know, on the interview, our guest said, you know, that whenever they went to counseling, if if her husband was ever challenged or called out to do something, Mm -hmm. he would quit the counseling. Mm -hmm. My heart has been so burdened for my mother recently because she doesn't really have a way out that doesn't involve uprooting her entire life. But she's lived under the weight of his judgment so long that it's seeming more and more like it would be the right path. My dad is a deacon at the church where they have attended many decades of their marriage. Everyone knows him to be a good guy on the outside, and I'm pretty sure no one would take her seriously if she tried to expose his abuse. I know this because I wasn't taken seriously when I tried to tell other adults about the way he treated us when I was a child. Short of a radical transformation by the Holy Spirit, which we've all prayed for for many years, nothing will change if she doesn't leave him. Divorce itself would be a huge effort as she would likely have to leave her house and her church community for the reasons I just mentioned, and there's not a clear path forward after that. That's rough. That's sad. It's terrible. Yeah. And I think, you know, I hear hear this from a lot of my readers too. They're concerned not about their own marriages, but about their parents' marriages or a sibling's marriage or, Mm -hmm. you know, their best friend's marriage. And I know this is really hard to hear, but you can't rescue anybody. No. And, you know, one of the things about abuse is that your agency is taken away. Like, um, and someone else controls you. And so it's really important when you're working with someone who is abused that you don't take their agency away either. Like, even if you think they need to leave, you can't make them leave. All you can say is, I am really worried about you. I believe you're being abused. I don't want this for you. And please know, Mom, if you ever, ever want help, I am here for you. Mm-hmm. Wow. But ultimately, they have to make that decision. Yeah, they have to make the decision. I think that we can make the, the Christian church a safer place, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can we can help by speaking out. Like this woman, when she was a child speaking out against her dad, mm-hmm. um, that took a lot of courage. Because in the church, we often have this sort of like, um, you know, keep it in the family kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not helpful. I mean, Jesus talked about like what you hear it in, in the, the back rooms, shout from the rooftops. Yeah. I mean, if... You know, we should be proud of what's going on in our in our lives. Sometimes you get attacked for saying that that 
you you think all men are abusive or all men are controlling and that sort of thing. And that, that's the farthest thing from what you think. I'm certainly not a controlling, abusive man, and most of the men you interact with are not. Mm-hmm. The problem is that there are some out there, and we need to start saying when that happens, this is not acceptable and this is not the way it should be. Yeah. Um, and we need to focus on, as Christian men who are leaders in the church, we need to focus on Christian virtue, like kindness, humility, gentleness, mm-hmm. self-control, rather than being in charge, being a leader, mm-hmm. these kind of things. I mean, being a leader is not a fruit of the Spirit. Being yeah. kind is. This man is not kind to his wife. Whether or not you agree with him or disagree with him, he's abusing her, he's not being kind. Yeah. Um, and we need to start saying, you know, we are men and women capable of living out the fruits of the Spirit in our lives with the help of God. Yeah, and I just want to say too, you do not have an obligation to keep anyone else's secrets. If someone is being abusive, you don't need to pretend like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to pretend in your family. You don't need to pretend to your children that grandma and grandpa are good. Um, in fact, it's better if you don't. It's better if you tell your kids, yeah, grandpa's not nice to grandma. And we all see that. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, they're going to see it anyway, and they're not going to be able to know how to process that. But it's you, you also... You have to do it in an age-appropriate yes, way. Yes, you do. You yeah. do. But you don't need to keep other people's secrets. You don't need to act like everything's okay. And you can call your dad out. You know, unless that would make things dangerous for your mother. Obviously, don't mm-hmm. do that if it would make things actually dangerous. Um, but I don't think you you owe you, you need to keep the secret from the church either. Like, if he's a deacon, he should not be a deacon if he's abusing his wife. And you know, it's okay to tell the church leadership, my my father is not. It, it does not meet the qualifications for a deacon. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you need to be careful. Does this put your mother at more risk? And mm-hmm. that's always a, a tricky question. And Will they listen to you? They may very well not. This church may be totally toxic, but probably not everyone in the church is toxic. Mm-hmm. And if you speak up, it could be that someone's wife is going to hear that, or you're going to give other people courage to speak up. So I just think we all need to stop keeping these secrets mm-hmm. um, and stop pretending everything's okay when it's not. So I wish I had an easy answer that would help you help your mom. Unfortunately, she has to come to that realization herself. But I think putting things in place so that she has a place to go, letting her feel like her life wouldn't completely be over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may be a big sacrifice on your part because you may not want your mom to come live with you, but that might be what has to happen or a sibling or something. But yeah, just letting her know that she does have some choices and, uh, and that you see what's happening and you're not okay with what's happening and you're not going to pretend it's all right. Okay, that's all been really heavy. Yeah. And I do want to actually end on a happier note. So I'm going to bring Rebecca back. Okay. Because I want to read something. I I want to talk about some cool things that have happened this week. You know, one of the most exciting things that's happened to me this week. What? Is every day, I swear I've had at least five messages or emails from women saying, I spoke up at my church and here's what happened. Yeah. Um, one woman, her pastor actually preached on great sex rescue last week. Like that's he amazing. He sermon. Um, he's led a men's, a men's Bible study on it. Like, <laughs> like guys, we got to do this right. Like this is really exciting. And, but it's all because people are speaking up. Like that mm-hmm. woman only heard about our podcast because somebody else shared it yes and then she's like holy cow that was me mm-hmm. you know and so thank you to that woman who shared it and mm-hmm. the more we share healthy stuff the more we can drown out the stuff that really isn't healthy well and not only drown it out it also means that you know when people say stuff that's just obviously telling on themselves people mm-hmm. have the 
the the courage and the like certainty of like no 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 you can tell when a woman's aroused to speak up up because that's been so normal in the christian circles to say that that we don't even realize that's like a red flag or weird which is one of the reasons why non-christians laugh at us honestly it really is um (laughs) you know our launch team team for the good guys guide to great sex and the good girls guide to great sex are going to be starting next week Mm -hmm. um i meant to start them this week and we just didn't have our act together i'm gonna be honest two month old we have yeah, to, we forgot to factor in you. two month old. A lot of it's you, some of it's me. But we're going to be starting next week. And if you want, we're going to have the link in um, the podcast post and podcast notes where you can sign up today. If you have your receipt, your pre-order, you can send that to us now and you will get on our list and we will send you out emails in the middle of the next week. Um, but you'll you look for a big announcement about that. Join our email list. I'll put a link to that as well so that you'll get announcements. We have an amazing evangelical sex report card to go along with our pre-order bonus um, just to where we give marks and all different aspects of sex to see how we're doing and you can also join our launch team and get access to the books right away which is really cool and fun and there's going to be a super fun Facebook group that goes along with that we can rebuild healthy stuff from the ground up so this doesn't keep happening and I want to read you just a really encouraging message that I got on Instagram this week a woman said I just read The Great Sex Rescue in about three days flat and to clarify The Great Sex Rescue was our book that was out last March Mm-hmm. The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex are out this March. Mm-hmm. So um, The Great Sex Rescue was the one where we, we looked at the launched, harmful teachings. And we launched our, our survey yeah, findings into the world. Exactly. And so we looked at the harmful teachings and said, hey, this is how we can talk about it in a better way. And then The Good Girl's Guide and Good Guy's Guide are, let's just build from the ground up. Yeah. What does healthy sex look like? So she says, I read The Great Sex Rescue in three days flat. I homeschool too, and I have a toddler, so that was fast for me. <laughs> I was fully reading it while cooking dinner, but nothing burned. <laughs> I cried several times, read quotes to my husband. We were literally speechless multiple times. My favorite thing, though, is the book helped me to celebrate my husband. Time and again, I thought... OMG, I've been safe. Thank mm-hmm. you, Jesus, I've been safe. We both had a lot of bad teaching we had to work through, but we are so grateful for voices like yours that celebrate and call out the beauty and passion that marriage was created to be. Yeah, that's awesome. And it is, you know, yeah. you're not crying in the shower. Is not a gold mine. It's not a gold mine. <laughs> no, that should be, in essence, one of the worst nightmares of your spouse. Yeah, and yeah. it's so much better than that. We can do so much better. Mm-hmm. Men's sex drives are not the same as a bedridden woman not getting water. And honestly, for a lot of marriages, sex drive differences aren't even a thing. Yeah, 23% they're shared and 19% she's got the higher sex drive. So let's do this better. Let's find healthy. Let's find passion. And I really think it's time. The church is ready. We see how rotten all of this is. Mm -hmm. And we are ready for something so much better. So I'm really excited for the Good Girl's Guide and the Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. I'm really excited for what they're going to do. So tune in next week. Our launch team is starting. You can send in your receipt now and be part of that. And let's see where God takes us. And let's see what health is in front of us. So thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.